you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. I'm really excited today to have uh, Vu yet again uh, to, on a different topic. He talked to Kevin last time about the life force and training a life force for your work and for your money, which I think was a topic that really touched me. And so I'm very happy to have him back talking about another completely different issue, a lot more medical as well. Uh, And this is about ageism, uh, which is, I think we agree, uh, one of the biggest issues in medicine currently, Uh, perhaps something that we don't know about. And I didn't know about as as much as I thought I did. So I'm glad that I would talk about it today. Vu, Maybe you can talk about what ageism is and how it's defined. Yeah, I think, uh, thank you very much, first of all, uh, Dimitri, for having me back again on your show. I think what what we need to, I think, understand is we, we are in a era of ageism. By that, I mean that I think we are in an era where most of the mistakes made in regards to you know uh, violating this very precious principle uh, is is being done at our generation. When we think about the baby boomers being the first generation of a massive amount of of patients who are of coming of age, and we are the first generation of healthcare providers providing them with with the care, and you know. Uh, Dimitri, I don't know if you remember, but when I did my my medicine and when I did my family medicine and, and emergency medicine, I don't believe I was properly trained on this. And so it's one of those topics that as healthcare professionals in our generation, we're very ill-prepared. And because we are ill-prepared, we're not handling it it very well. And so that's why I say we are in the era of ageism. So now that we talked and used the word ageism so much, what what is in fact ageism? Well, ageism is a term coined by a a U.S. psychologist, uh, Dr. Robert N. Butler in 1969. So you imagine this, that this has been since 1969, but we're only talking about it in the 2020s, which which is surprising and amazing. So the definition very simply is stereotyping and discriminating people because they are old. And that comes in many forms. And when I say discriminating, very much like racism, very much like sexism, it's not something that we do overtly or we do with intention. Now, some of us may do it with intention when it comes to racism. But when it comes to ageism, you know, when you're talking about healthcare professionals, whether it's doctors, whether it's allied health or nursing, we are here to help people. We are here to provide care. So how is it that people who are trained and dedicated to provide care to other individuals still stereotype and discriminate? Obviously, not with intention. So it's something that is done unintentionally, but we must recognize that's there. Yeah, it's a big blind spot. And coming back to some things you said, I, I barely remember doing any geriatrics in, when I was doing my medical school, certainly a bit more in family medicine. But yeah, I actually looked this up and it's, it's an issue. So medical schools spend about 1%, 1% of their hours doing geriatrics. I'm not necessarily criticizing medical schools. I know they have 10,000 topics they have to cover, but how many, how many people are becoming elders every year in Canada, it's the fastest growing age group. We have about 6 million people and they're growing every year. 
So it's it's certainly a group that has to be paid more attention to. And maybe school is changing a bit, but certainly both of our generation of doctors, we had barely any geriatrics. So I agree, I agree with that. And I agree with the fact that it's a bit of a blind spot as well, whether it's a thing that you don't know you're doing. Right, you don't know you're discriminating somebody until you actually read the literature. And there's some really sad things that I read that I want to share a bit later on. But but yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's an issue that's underrecognized, and that's why it's important we talk about it today. Can we maybe go on to? F- I'll, I'll I'll share some statistics here just so people realize what the issue is. So currently, there's only 300 geriatricians across all of Canada. That's 300 geriatricians for six million people. In some provinces, have one or two. For example, if you look at at uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, that's one. Saskatchewan has only one. And if you're unlucky and you're in the territories, there's none. How many people live in Saskatchewan? How many of them are the elders? It's a specialty that does not seem to attract people. And I guess I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Why do you think people don't go into geriatrics? Well, Dimitri, I think geriatric is one of those subspecialties of medicine. And I I shouldn't say subspecialties because family doctors take care of elderly people all the time. So even those, those numbers represent, you know, geriatricians, we have to look at what are the amount of people who care for the elder uh, person. And that includes all family doctors. But this being said, it's not a, it's not a sexy topic. It's not a sexy part of medicine. It's not the same as, you know, diagnosing a cancer. It's not as sexy as treating a fib. It's not as, as sexy as, you know, taking care of little kids and immunization and, and seeing the kids grow and seeing them, you know, evolve and progress. Whereas in geriatric medicine, well, patients as they as they grow older they get more illness they get more sickness it becomes more complicated it takes more time it takes more effort and maybe because of the fact that we want to see results we want to see things move we want to we want to be efficient and seeing that elderly person taking the time is something that we're not used to and we're not we're not comfortable with because we haven't been trained properly on it. And so that type of medicine takes a special type of behavior, conduct that, to be honest, we, we haven't been properly trained. When you think about acute care medicine, when you think when you go through about, you know, your your training in family medicine, which I also did family medicine, it's about efficiency, it's about moving, it's about, you know, diagnosing this and doing that CT scan, where a lot of the times when you're dealing with uh, an elder person, it's really about talking about the history, understanding the function, and not necessarily just ordering the CT scan, or ordering that ultrasound. And so, I think I think this is a part of medicine that is very neglected because we simply are not trained that way. We're not thinking that way. Yeah. For example, you don't realize that for some elderly people, having stairs is a huge deal, right? It's 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 not a big deal to us. We're young, you know. We 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 have our legs, we have our knees, but it's those little things that are not taught in school that you don't really know until you actually talk to somebody for 20 minutes or half an hour and ask them, how are you doing at home? What are some of the challenges? And then you're like, well, this is an issue. That's an issue. It's really hard to teach that. And it's, it's really hard to find the time because again, how much time do you spend with a patient at the walk-in? Like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15. You don't take the time to ask those really important questions um, that we do. And, and the other thing I think there's, there's a bit of a stigma. And I would admit that I, I was, 
maybe privy to that, that it's a very depressing discipline. Uh, that it's if you do geriatrics, you know, as you said, you don't get the results. You don't get the immediate satisfaction of giving somebody, you know, taking a foreign object off somebody's ear or draining an abscess and they feel better, or even treating somebody for a UTI and they feel better the next day. It's it's a it's about being there for them. So it's a lot less gratifying. So I think that's the big one of the big hangups that I've talked to with people. Uh, it's the, the issue that maybe geriatricians have a very depressing job. Well, you know what? I I'm going to counter. I'm going to counter argue that uh, with a change in mindset or framing it differently. So you're right. When we're dealing with elderly people, you know, we give something we want to see results, but in that population, we don't because. Sometimes you expect the disease to continue to progress, for example, dementia. So the way I see how we help this population is the same way I think most palliative care physicians do their work. Now, what is more depressing than treating a patient at the end of their life and knowing they're going to die? But when you talk to palliative care physicians, that's not how they see it. How they see it is, I was that person who was there before they leave this earth. And I had the privilege of being there for them and caring for them and relieving their pain and providing comfort and providing reassurance. And and I was that person leading them to that place. It's a privilege. They see it as a privilege. And I see geriatric medicine or the care of the elderly exact same way. I don't see it as a depressing medicine. I see it as this is me offering the best that I can to help this individual transition into a different stage in their life. And during that stage in their life, they have needs, they have certain challenges. And if I'm there to do the best that I can to meet those challenges, for me, it, it's, it, it vigorates me more than saving some guy who had an aortic dissection that I treated in the emergency department because I value that. I, not that I don't value saving someone's life with an aortic dissection, but I put the same value to the help that I provide to that elderly person. And so for me, I don't see it as a depressing medicine. I see it as my way of offering the help that I was trained to do. I, I was trained to be a doctor, to provide care and to provide treatment and cure if I can. But if I can't, then I'm there to provide my hand and my love and my compassion. And it's an honor for me to do that for that elderly person in that transition. It's about a shift in perspective, uh, something, again, that we don't experience in medical school or even in residency. But but you're right, you, you do experience it in palliative care. I did palliative care for about two or three years and started my practice. And you're so correct that it's, it's such a powerful feeling to be there. Uh, when somebody is is dying, and to be, it's it's a privilege. You're right, and I didn't really feel depressed. It's it's sad. It's extremely sad, and families are broken. But there's an elation to it that you were there, and that people allow you to to be in that emotional space. In fact, what's interesting, I was looking at um, this is a CMA. They did a medical profile on geriatrics in 20. 20- 2019, and maybe you can give me some stats because you you, you know you you do a lot of lifestyle coaching, but the actual professional satisfaction for geriatricians is a 80 81% of them have professional satisfaction which to me seems probably above average to most other specialties i don't know i couldn't unfortunately i did some research and i couldn't find the average for most specialties but i'm sure it's lower than that so it seems like geriatricians the whole stereotype of being a depressive specialty may be untrue 
because they're very, at least in Canada, they seem to be very satisfied with their professional lives. And, and again, I think it's a, it's a change in mindset. It's a different mindset. And I think that geriatricians and all those people out there, including the family doctors, the nurse practitioners who provide care to the elderly, they get elation from the fact that they are there. Yeah. Man, and again, if anything, people, our listeners, please, geriatrics is not a depressing medicine. It's it's different. It isn't challenging, but there's a lot of good things in it and uh, a lot of happy moments and sad moments, like any any anything in medicine. The other thing I wanted to sort of discuss is some other findings that show more of the systemic issue with ageism in our system. Again, blind spots. I didn't know these were issues. But for example, some findings here is one of them that I didn't realize is, and you, you've seen this yourself, who usually your older patients come with somebody in the room, correct? They have a caregiver with them. That's for most of my patients as well that are over 65. Well, what's interesting is if there's a caregiver in with them, they're a lot less likely to talk about a lot more issues. Like they tend to close up more. The other thing that they've noticed in some studies is when there's a caregiver there, the doctor will tend to talk to the caregiver more than the actual patient. When I'm putting myself in their shoes, uh, you must feel ignored. I, I realized that maybe I was doing that a bit actually. And I, I don't do it that much, especially because from having uh, a lot of big pedi- pediatric practice. I'm not comparing it to, but I'm saying when you have a kid and an adult, you try to talk to both of them, not one. Similarly with elders. Um, but it's an issue. It's a big issue. This, this is happening. And I was really surprised to know that if there's somebody in there, they actually talk less to you. Have you had any experience with that? Absolutely. I think you, you are right in what you're saying. And, and it happens very naturally. And, and not because we have malintentions, right? We, we, we want to help the patient. But when we're thinking about, about an elderly patient who comes in with, let's say, cognitive impairment, immediately our attention turns to the power of attorney or we turn to the to the daughter and son and we speak to the son about the patient who's <laughs> literally in front of us right. and and we barely say hello to the patient we said hello to the daughter but we didn't say hello to the patient and again those are the types of little things those little ages and those little discrimination and like you say not acknowledging the patient who that the elder person is a patient not the daughter not acknowledging that person is a form of discrimination and in a form of, uh, let's call it little microaggressions, maybe, right. Right. right? And so that happens often. And, you know, you don't need to blame yourself. We we all have to blame ourselves. We, we all do it. I do it. And when I catch myself doing it, then I'm, I apologize and say, you know, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, uh, I apologize. Let, let's continue our conversation and then and directly make contact. And the, the reason why we do this is I think it is our way of trying to be efficient, our way of trying to get to the bottom of the problem. You know, mom has back pain. Let's let's deal with the back pain. And so it has become with let's deal with the back pain as opposed to let's deal with Mrs. Smith. And so we 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 have gone from that type of medicine. And possibly, and you know, I don't blame the doctors, I don't blame the providers. I blame the system that we are in. Mm-hmm. We are in a system where all challenge, we're all pushed to the limit, we're all lacking resources. We try to do the best that we can in the time frame that we can. And but by doing that, there are certain needs of the elderly that we're not meeting. In fact, not only are we not meeting, we're violating, right? And so we have to be careful. We have to think about that in our attempt to be fast, to be efficient, to be productive. Well, that doesn't always meet the need of the patient in front of us. The same way, 
you know, you and I will see patients who come in with chest pain and anxiety and they're crying. Uh, you know, uh, you and I will probably stop questioning about the chest pain and provide support and provide comfort to the person who's crying and forget about the chest pain for a minute, for a minute right? We would do that for a adult, for a child, but we don't do that for an elderly. That's true. And it, it, and again, we're not trying to shame people or say people. Not at all. That. It, we're just trying to, when you, when you become aware of these things you're not aware of, then you can act on them. And we've all done them and I've done them. Getting ready for this podcast, I've realized that I've done them and, and I'll do them less, right? That's what it's about. Talking about efficiency, because again, the other thing that really got to me in looking at some of these studies is that of all the populations that we see, we tend to spend the least time with the elderly, which really surprised me. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm the best doctor ever, but when I see an elderly person in my schedule, I know that I'm going to take an extra 10 to 20 minutes for sure. It's, it's just a given. But that's not the case across the country. We actually spend less time with them. And again, I want to have some of your thoughts about this, because that's really surprised me, to be frank with you. That, that sort of caught me off guard. Why do you think that's happening? I think that's happening again in our strive to be efficient and our strive to meet the challenges of the waiting room outside. And so very naturally, instinctively, and this is why it's a blind spot. And you and I know, you know, cognitive bias and blind spot, they're called the blind spot because we don't recognize them. And not, not, not that we do them uh, with malintention or we do it intentionally, but we will talk to the the person who came with the patient will talk to the daughter, the son, the aunt, the granddaughter, and we, we try to get things done quickly and get going. And then the moment we do that, it's like, okay, whatever Mrs. Smith came for, it doesn't matter because I got all the information from the daughter. And now let's move on to the next patient. And, and it seems like, you know, when we're talking about that population, the biggest problem is not sometimes the knee pain, because you and I know what the knee pain is about. Mm -hmm. Right. Most often, if there's no red flags, we're talking about osteoarthritis. But with that with that elderly person and the stairs on the second floor, it's really not about the knee pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about how do this person function in his or her environment. And we don't take the time for that. We talk about the knee pain. We diagnose the arthritis. Here's some ibuprofen and get out of my office. But that's not where the discussion should be. And uh, and unfortunately, that's how we are trained. And again, that that's that's that is 100% it. And and the other thing, and I'll finish off with this. And again, it's not to shame people, but the other thing that's been noticed is our general tendency. I'll say us, so so nobody feels ashamed and, and blamed to dismiss complaints and pathologies as being part of old age, as opposed to investigate them thoroughly. For example, memory. Pain, pain is a common one. Um, so we have a tendency to do that. And that's that in itself is, a, I think, one of the biggest issues because you can, old people can get appendicitis, right? They can. The fact that it happens a lot in old people, uh, old people can get cancer. So you, you can't, I'm just wondering again why this is happening in older people, where if you see a younger person coming complaining of abdominal pain, you probably will work them out more thoroughly than an older person you. You know what? I guess at some point, part of that is also colored by the person who comes with the elderly person, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I have heard this, oh, mom complains about this all day long. Yeah. 
oh, it's her knee. It's always her knee. I, I'm tired of her complaining about it. Right. That that in itself is could be sometimes being seen as maybe abuse. But, you know, and so you've got you've got people who come to you giving you a story and their story is colored by how they perceive things. And you are definitely colored by how you perceive things based on how they said it to you. And so obviously we we have those blind spots that we need, those blinds that we need to remove and say, yeah, um, you know, that elderly person could have an appendicitis. It's, it, it doesn't it doesn't go away just because I'm older. In fact, when you look at um, statistics in the emergency department of elderly patients who come in with abdominal pain, the number one cause of abdominal pain, a surgical abdominal pain is cholecystitis, right? Uh, the second would be appendicitis. So oh, second. It, it, those are statistics. And so when I see a patient comes in with abdominal pain in the elderly, that for me is a black box. That scares me a lot because one, the history may be unreliable. A patient may have cognitive impairment. I'm not getting the best of the story. There may be other ailments involved. And now I've got an exam that may be unreliable. They don't, they don't peak a fever. They don't have a white count. So for me, that, that belly is literally a black box. And for me, it's double attention, triple attention. And unfortunately, it's very easy for us to say, oh, don't worry about it. It's just your, your stomach or it's just your gastritis or, you know, it's this and that. And we, and we unfortunately poo-poo the, the complaint. And you're right. A lot of the a lot of the complaints don't get proper investigation, don't get proper treatment, don't get proper follow-up. And, and that may be a huge, huge bias in how we think. And again, I say bias because we don't do this intentionally and none of us do it intentionally. You know, we're, we're all here to help the patient, whether they're two years old, five years old, 35 or 85. We're here to help. But why do we help in a different way based on their age. And again, bias, bias. And it's not it's not from malintention. Yeah, and I think this is our first clinical pearl of the podcast is an old person complaining of any type of pain. <laughs> Spend more time with them than you, would, than you would usually because sometimes it's really bad. It's a bad thing. And that's interesting about the appendicitis being the second cause for an acute abdomen in older people. I didn't even know that. So you, you, we talked about our biases. Um, we talked about what ageism is and how it's really a systemic issue, just like the other isms here. There's a systemic issue and we have blind spots. We don't even know what's happening, but it is. The statistics don't lie here. So maybe we can talk a bit about stories because those are very powerful as well. And, and, and Vu, you, you've, you've had your fair share of stories here. You're an emergency physician. You've seen lots of things. So maybe you can share some examples of, of ageism and, and share that with the audience so we can learn from it. I'll, I'll share a few cases, but one extreme case that I think it needs to be shared because it brings a lot of points to light. And you and I will look at this and say, it, it, it's not possible that it happened, but it did. So um, I work in long-term care as well. And one day I have, I go into and round on my patients and I see one of my patients who's probably in her 89 with severe dementia. Uh, and the nurses tell me it's this, let's call her Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith in, is in a lot of pain. She has a lot of abdominal pain. This is not her. This is not her baseline. And for me, that's that's the clue, right? This is not her baseline is the clue. So I go in and examine her belly and she's 
in effect in a lot of pain. So call the ambulance, sends her to the emergency department. I won't say which one. She gets she gets uh, to the emergency department, gets an evaluation. And within literally, I, I went in the morning to do my rounds and literally before the end of my round, so maybe three and a half hour later, she bounced back at the nursing home. I'm like, oh my God, like how come she's back so fast? And this lady was still in pain and, and still very uncomfortable and nauseous. And and if you read the, the discharge note from the emergency department, hemoglobin of 45. Oh. And I'm like, uh, doesn't make sense. Like, how can a elderly 89 years old with acute abdominal pain and a hemoglobin of 45 be sent back to the nursing home within four hours? That did not make sense to me whatsoever. So I sent her back. I called another ambulance, sent her back to the same hospital. I literally drove to the emergency department and I spoke to the emerge doc, who I know. And I said, please don't send her back again. Uh, you need to admit her and you need to investigate her. And the daughter was there with me talking to the other eMERGE doc. They, in fact, admitted her. Unfortunately, 24 hours later, she passed away from ischemic colitis. And so you ask yourself the question, this is, this is extreme. Mm-hmm. This is drastic. So how is it that a patient, forget the fact that she was 89, how is it that a patient who comes in with acute abdominal pain in a hemoglobin of 45 gets sent home without imaging, without transfusion, without analgesia, without an IV, and without a scope, right? You and I would look at that and say, that's not possible. If 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 Vu went in and Vu is 50 years old or Vu is 25 years old, and I went in with those parameters, there is no way that me as Vu would ever discharge this patient home, right? This patient would be admitted, get transfusions, investigated, CT scan, and a scope. But this patient, because she was elderly and because she had severe cognitive impairment, for whatever reason, the nurse practitioner and the eMERGE doc decided that it was okay to send her home. And the kicker was for the family doctor, i.e. the doctor in the nursing home, to arrange for a scope. Now you can imagine how difficult it is to arrange for a scope in the first place, but try to arrange a scope for an elderly demen- uh, with, with dementia to get an outpatient scope <laughs> with a hemoglobin of 45. So you look at this case that seems extremely extreme, which I, I agree, it's extremely extreme, but how did it happen? And, and these are well-trained eMERGE docs. These are well-trained nurse practitioners. So that's one really, really extreme example. Another example coming from the emergency department is, so at another nursing home where I worked, I have a patient who develops sudden shortness of breath sent to the emergency department. The emergency department says, oh, he has heart failure, sends the patient back again within two, three hours. And uh, and the patient, unfortunately, you know, I mean, fortunately, I guess that the family did not want aggressive measures and all that. Uh, they didn't want the CPR, but they also questioned why the patient was not admitted to the hospital. So I spoke with the eMERGE docs eventually. And I said, listen, this patient you diagnosed as heart failure, did you give any medication? No. I'm like, why not? Why not? Why not at least some Lasix? Oh, well, I don't think he needed. Well, and at the, at the time, the, the O2 saddle was 82% and the, and the patient was breathing at 30. I'm like, okay, well, if this patient was 35 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, it wouldn't have been a question whatsoever. Patient would have been admitted. 
IV and IV Lasix and, and the whole shebang. And so a lot of these, we look at and say, these are well-trained healthcare providers. Why are we making these types of, of decisions? I'll give you a third one, which is not extreme, but you can see that it, it's also a form of ageism. So uh, I was in my family practice today and I get a letter from uh, the surgeon. And I had this patient who has a right shoulder pain, a partial rupture of the uh, supraspinatus tendon. And so uh, tried a whole bunch of things, uh, oral NSAIDs, acetaminophen, topical NSAIDs. And, and I know this patient very well. She's an elderly lady with limited income uh, and no way to pay for physio no way to pay for uh, physical rehab. And because we are family doctors, we know that story, right? We're, we're following these patients for a long time. We know the background. So I've sent her to see the orthopedic surgeon who agreed with the diagnosis and says, go do physio. Now, when you look at that, this is not an extreme case. This happens all day long, every day across Canada. When you, when you look last at week. <laughs> right? <laughs> when you, when you look at these patients and, you know, there's something about the fact that we are so focused on the medicine, we are so focused on the supraspinatus tear or tendonitis that we forgot the patient around that injury, right? And you look at an elderly person who lives alone, limited income, who has doesn't fulfill criteria for physio, and you essentially tell her to go do physio, well, what is that person going to do? You've essentially prescribed water because how is that person going to get better? And so it's, it's one of those scenarios where, again, we're very focused on the medicine, and but we're not focused on the patient. And sometimes for the elder patient, the elder person, well, it gets, it gets forgotten even faster. Yeah. Because a lot of the times they, they, they don't have a voice. And it's true. They don't have a voice because uh, their cognition may be slower. They don't speak the language. So imagine you have an elderly 85-year-old Chinese, Portuguese, Italian uh, Hungarian, name it. And, and and English is not the first language in Canada. You can imagine how difficult that is to communicate. And so their voices get lost. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's, it's, we're not saying these are bad doctors, but these are blind spots. You don't know what you don't know, right? You don't necessarily know that physio is really hard for a patient. If they can't, if they're living off a pension and how much is physio a session? It's what, 60 to a hundred dollars. And they have to decide between paying for the physio or having food on the table. So, so you don't know those things unless you talk to the people and actually ask them, well, can you afford the physio? Can you do physio? Are you able to drive yourself to the physiotherapist, right? We're not saying these are bad doctors. It's just there's things that we don't know. And again, you're right. We're not saying these are bad doctors. These are people who are well-trained. <laughs> I mean, I believe that the Canadian medical education system is bar none, like one of the best in the world. So we have very well-trained physicians. And where all this problem comes from is one, it's a blind spot. And two, I think we are at a time in society where we're so focused on the illness and no longer on the patient. Yeah. And especially if the patient needs more than just dealing with the the medical issue itself. It's the, 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 the whole the whole old school holistic care that is slowly going the way of the dodo because if we don't have time because the system's overworked but for other people they need it 
because they'll be much happier and much healthier, actually. Those stories are really intense, Vu. I have to say it's red flag after red flag after red flag after red flag. And, and that this can happen is, and it happens every day is it's just, it's just scary. But let's finish off on something more positive. And what can we do to be better to the elderly? Well, I think one of the things that I would urge all of us to do is look within ourselves first. So I hope that this is a call to action for all of us to look within us. And, and not because we've done something wrong, right? We've said it many times. It's not that we've done something wrong. It's just that, you know what? Our training did not allow us. The system doesn't allow us. The system pushes us in many directions. And some of those directions are not elder-friendly. And so look within us to say, have I, and I'm sure I have, done something that is not helpful to my elder patient? What are the different things that I'm doing or the decisions that I'm making that is not helpful to my patient currently or in the future? Something as simple as, you know what, writing a prescription to go do physio for someone who can't afford it or can't get there or doesn't have the language skills to do it, it is essentially not helpful. Um, and so, would we do that to a 35-year-old or 25-year-old? We would find time to figure out some resources. And yet for the elderly, we don't take that time. And so really it's a call to action to say, first of all, where am I faulting on this? And you know what? I thought about this myself many times. And trust me, I've faulted many times on this as well. As much as I'm here talking about ageism, you know what? I'm no, I'm no saint. I'm no God. I, I do make mistakes. And, and I, I have... I have made decisions where I'm like, oh, that wasn't really the most smart decision for this elderly patient now looking back. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, when we talk about ageism, there's a structural and systemic ageism as well as there is for, you know, systemic racism and sexism. So a lot of the things that we do as, as physicians that we, that what the system does is really not to the benefit of the elderly. Let's take as the example what's happened in COVID for the last 18 months and how long-term care has been neglected over the last 40 years. Well, that's not one individual. That's not you. That's not me. That's a systems issue. And so that's a systemic issue. So why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about this because we are advocates for our patients. And so where do we start our advocacy? Our, our start for advocacy is really changing the mindset, really changing the, the frame of mind and how we approach problems. When we care for the little kids and the, and the babies, we, we really think of how we would manage that. But when we think about the elderly, we don't. It's they, they are the same group as, you know, someone who's between 18 and 55. You know, they have the same needs, the same challenges. And obviously the answer is no, but we don't spend time discussing that. We don't spend time advocating for that. And this is, I think, one of the things we must change is where do I begin? Well, it begins with me. But two, this, the second thing that needs to change is education and the system, because it is systemic, it is structural, and it's built into our policies and it's built into our health policies. So where to make that change? I, as I said earlier, we are the first generation that is making all these mistakes. The generation after us, the millennials, the Gen Z, and all the new brand new medical students coming in, they'll be better equipped with dealing with the elder care than we will ever be. So it takes education, but you can't have a whole generation of people like us who don't know how to treat the elderly person. Right. We, we can't wait till the next generation right. to change. Right. The change has to happen in our generation, in this generation. So education needs to happen. Advocacy needs to happen. But first, look within yourself to say, 
am I doing this? Am, am I unintentionally administering ageism to my patients? It's possible. And again, never with malintent. That that that's 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 great. Look within yourself first, and then look into the system. But but uh, hopefully, I, I really really appreciated this talk, and I think it's it was a blind spot of mine as well. And I have some call to action to do as well with my patients. And hopefully, this has been very helpful to listeners. Thank you again for coming. Just before we leave, we did have a bit of a chat about what you do outside of your medical practice, which I think was very interesting and unique in Canada, actually. You're one of the only, you are the only Canadian doctor to do this. So if you can spend the last two, three minutes talking about it, I think it'd be very beneficial to our listeners. It's a bit different subject from ageism, but if we never have you on again, I, I really feel bad if the audience misses on, on what you do outside of your medical profession. So, so please. Well, I, I hope you'll have me on again. Oh, I, sure. I really enjoy our discussion, but here's why I do it. So what I do is I do coaching and mentorship for healthcare professionals, you know, doctors, nurse, nurse practitioners, dentists, because we all fall in the same category. I, I'm going to step on the, on the limb here and say that healthcare and healthcare providers in general are very bad with money. Okay. In general are very bad yes. with managing finances. Yeah. And some people will, will call you up and say, Dimitri, you need to cancel Dr. Tran. I know what I'm doing. I'm fair enough, you know, but the vast majority of us uh, are not very good in, in managing our finances. And so what, what has happened is I, I provide mentorship to help people understand and educate. And again, I don't sell anything. I don't have a license. I can't sell you an insurance product. I can't even sell you an ETF. And by all means, I can't even sell you a stock. So I'm not here to sell. I'm here to educate and to handhold and to comfort you through a process. I think you said something earlier that is in regards to the ageism, but you said something that's really important. You don't know what you don't know. And in personal finance, what you don't know will not kill you, but will cost you a lot of money down the road. And by saying that, I mean one thing, if it costs you a lot of money down the road and you don't know that, it means that you're running on the hamster treadmill for 30, 40 years until you get to the end and you realize, wait a minute, where's my nest egg? I've been working all this time and I have no nest egg. And trust me, I've spoken to a lot of people who have no nest egg and they've been working for 30, 40 years. And so during this whole time, not only are you running on the hamster treadmill, you're running faster, longer, harder, and more. And so you're doing this and what happens, you can't, you know, there's only a finite time in 24 hours. So if you're constantly working harder, longer, you're not spending time with your family. You're not putting the energy to the relationships that are important to you. So what ends up, what ends up to doctors and, and dentists and, and nurses? Well, you know the story, divorce, alcohol, drugs, depression, burnout. Now, um, you know this data because I'm sure you've discussed it. In 2018 or 2019, the CMAJ article came out that says 40% of all Canadian doctors across all specialties are burnt out. This is in Canada. In 2019, a study came out. 87%, I'm not kidding you, 87% of all emergency doctors across Canada met at least one of the item of the mesh lash burnout scale. And this is pre-pandemic. This is not even a study during pandemic. Now you imagine this, nine out of 10 eMERGE docs 
potentially are in burnout. Now, why are we in burnout? There's systems issues again, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a some of the is personal issue. I spoke to one of my friends who told me a lot of these things are actually self-inflicted. And and I absolutely agree with, with what he said. Why is it self-inflicted? Is because we put the financial stress on ourselves. There are things that we can do that relieve that financial stress. Otherwise, we're working faster, harder, longer. In the emergency department, you have to work five, you have to see five or six patients per hour. And so that stems from what? That stems from the fact that there's a pressure to make money. There's a pressure to make money. Let's, let's all be honest. Money can buy a lot of things. And for some of us, money pays back student loans. For some of us, money means a better lifestyle. For some of us, money means, you know, put, make, putting my kids to, to a private school. Or for some of us, it means that I have to pay, you know, uh, my wife because we're divorced. Whatever reason it may be, a lot of the drivers is financial. And unless we recognize that or unless we acknowledge that and we deal with that, we're always going to run faster, longer, harder on the treadmill. And so for me, it's about trying to resolve and mitigate and find a solution to burnout. Now, is managing money the only way? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like someone who has an alcohol problem. The first thing you do is you stand up and say, my name is Vu and I have an alcohol problem. So how do you deal with burnout? Well, the first thing you say, you stand up and you say, I am Vu and I have a financial problem. How am I going to deal with that? And once I deal with the financial problem, you'll see very quickly that the reasons leading to burnout, some of them will be removed. Obviously, we can't remove the systemic issues. We cannot remove the organizational issues, but all those are manageable. And I say to people all the time, there is no point in me trying to control the system or me trying to control the organization because I cannot. I cannot decide for my CEO what EMR to use. I cannot decide for Doug Ford or whichever premier that they will cover this and not cover that and that there will be this amount of money dedicated this year. I cannot control any of it. I cannot control interest rate. I cannot control inflation. But I can control how I manage my money, how I mitigate risk, how I use insurance products, and how I mitigate tax and tax burden. All that I can control. Now, if I can control all that and make my life a little bit easier, and I'll give you a very concrete example. And people look at me like they, I have you know, four eyes on my head. So the biggest problem for physicians is not an income problem. We don't have an income problem. Physicians are the top 1% of society. If you look at the top 1% definition in Canada, physicians, all of us belong there. So if we are the top 1% of, of Canadian society, our problem is not income. Our problem is distribution at the end when I take it out, whether at the end of the year or at the end of my career at retirement. So it's a distribution problem. And what eats up distribution? Taxes. So physicians don't have an income problem. Physicians have a tax problem. So if you deal with the tax problem, all the other income problem is not a problem you can deal with. You can pay for all the things that you want to pay as long as you manage your taxes. Now, I'll give you one concrete example. If I'm able to manage my taxes properly and I do it right efficiently, and I'm able to save, uh, you know, a, a small number, I'm going to give you a number, 10,000 per year, right? Because I manage my taxes properly, I'm going to save 10,000. This is the minimum number I'm going to give you. In fact, for most of us, if we manage our tax properly, we're going to save close to 50, 70,000 a year. But I'm not going to give you those extreme numbers. I'm going to give you 10,000. So if I save $10,000 a year just because I manage my taxes properly and 
as a family doctor or as an eMERGE doc, I would just say on average, it's about $900 to $1,000 per shift, let's just say, right? As a very, very round number. That means 10 shifts that I don't have to do in that year because I've been able to keep $10,000 more in my pocket. Well, each shift is eight hours, which means that now I'm able to save 80 hours in my year. Now, what can I do with my 80 hours? I can spend time with my kids. I can spend time with my significant other. I can go take a drawing class. I can go do volunteering at the soup clinic, whatever your fancy is. You now all of a sudden have 80 hours in your year to use. And that's only with a $10,000 example. Most of us can probably save close to 20 to 30,000, if not 50 to 70,000. Now you imagine that you, you multiply that by the amount of hours per shift that you have to gain for each thousand dollars. It's humongous. And based on what I've, my discussion with Kevin, you know, we've talked about life force, life energy. If I'm able to now all of a sudden gain 80 hours, 160 hours, 240 hours, I've gained that energy back for me. And I'm not exchanging that energy to gain another paycheck. And I'm not working and running as fast. You can imagine that definitely reduces the risk of burnout. Will it totally take it away? I'm not going to stand here to say it will, but it's definitely going to make way in trying to reduce some of those risk factors. So for us, being able to manage our finances is really about preventing burnout. And, and, and again, going back to, to what we talked about, having more time with patients and being more empathetic with patients and being more introspective about what we're doing because we're not tired, we're not burnt out. When you're burnt out, because I've been burnt out, I'm sure we it's a very common thing. You just become very, very negative and very, you're not a good doctor and no. for outside reasons. No. And, and what you do is, is the service you offer. And, and again, I'll, maybe you could tell the website and I'll put it on the email, but you do one-on-one mentoring and coaching uh, financially and life coaching as well. One-on-one, you talked about that you just phone call. Well, I guess there's, you, you talk over Zoom or over... Well, prior to the pandemic, I was right. doing in person. Person, okay. Yeah, I was doing in person. I was coaching. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and the last part of our coaching was on Zoom. But the coaching and the mentoring is not just, you know, that one-on-one that time. It's it's text, is phone calls, it's emails. It's uh, helping that person, whoever it may be, to figure out different contracts with, you know, the the practice. Should I sign this contract? Should I move to, you know, X city when my husband is here and and I need to, you know, work in the emergency department, I need to do family practice, but they want me at that location. What should my decisions be? And so there's, there's a human decision, there's a psychological, emotional decision, and there's also a financial decision. So when I do coaching and mentorship, it's not just about the finance, it's about all those aspects. But I obviously always include the finance in there. And some other examples of mentorship is people come and say, you know what, Vu, I uh, do I need insurance? Like what type of insurance do I need? Well, what what do you know about and what type of insurance are you are you looking at? So I talk about disability, I talk about critical illness, I talk about life insurance, term insurance, participating insurance, UL, universal life, I talk about long-term care insurance, I talk about practice um, liability insurance. I talk about all that and I provide the education, the pros and the cons and how it fits into their life, but I never sell them anything. I'm not, I'm not an insurance broker. And so it's, it's all about 
coaching, mentorship, and education. The, the true definition of mentorship, which is what you're talking about. You're not selling things, you're, you're sharing wisdom. And, and again, thank you so much for sharing wisdom with us today. And I'd love to have you again. Um, what, is the, what, is, what is your website? Uh, it's www.financialhealth.com. Thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much for all the best. Thank you.